Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. I think that comes back to that key thing is that we need to be listening to about what's best for us and policy needs to be framed on that basis and some evidence. This week on Women on the Line, we bring you legislative pictures of three different issues changes to forced divorce laws for trans and gender diverse people, sex worker rights and the Nordic model, and safe access zones for abortion clinics. First, we'll hear 3CR presenter Giselle Hanna speaking with activist Sally Goldner about the end of forced divorce laws for trans and gender diverse people in Victoria in the wake of marriage equality last year. This is Sally Goldner. Prior to the 7 December last year, with society having at the federal law a very heteronormative model of marriage, um, which I'll call male uh, marriage by, by, by whereby one person had an M, the other an F on their birth certificate. Um, you know, people where one person transitioned and by whatever means needed to change their birth certificate marker meant they had to divorce because unless the marriage was to be one M, one F, it was not allowed. So when on 7 December last year we finally got marriage equality, you know, we'll say marriage regardless of a little letter on a birth certificate, the six remaining states and territories that hadn't fixed this problem fixed, uh, had, had the requirement to pick it up, uh, sorry, to fix it up. And what was happening is loving couples, you know, sure, when someone comes out as trans, there might be an initial um, strong reaction from the other partner, but then they say, well, we'll work this out. I still love you. I married the person, you know, that sort of thing, um, and work through it. And what was happening was there was this terrible Hobson's choice, if you like, where um, for the trans person to change their birth certificate meant a divorce or to stay together meant they were stuck with the birth certificate that was not who they were and caused distress on practical, practical and emotional levels. What has happened in Victoria is that that situation is now coming to an end and Acknowledging, of course, the good work of ACT in 2014 and South Australia in December 2016, who were first and second cabs off the rank. So given the marriage equality laws, why is this even a thing? Why does it matter if there are two M's on the birth certificates or two F's on the birth certificates or any of those things if same-sex attracted people are now allowed to get married? Well, technically, in a way, you're right, because if there's, you know, under our federal constitution, if federal, where federal, if there's an inconsistency between a state and a federal law, federal overrides state, but it was considered better to tidy it up and get rid of the provisions altogether so to just be, we'll say, 100% plus consistent, and that way there could be no problems whatsoever for... Um, couples uh, marrying from now on that there wouldn't be any problems so it was considered best to sort of well dot, dot the I's and cross the T's to make sure that this had been sorted out and the six remaining states and territories had been given 12 months grace um, from 7 December last year to do it and Victoria has now done it. I think that these changes and these developments reflect something um, that 
that didn't quite work, in my opinion, about the Yes campaign and about the focus of the Yes campaign on very particular elements of the LGBTIQ community. So basically just the L and the G part of the community. Do you feel that one of the things that was missing when we were all campaigning for the Yes vote was this presence or this focus on the experiences of trans people in marriages where they were forced to be divorced? I think that that particular part of it could have been given far more prominence because every time, let's say, as an educator, I go out and talk about this in in a session, people do the proverbial head desk and face palm when this comes up. It's like, what on earth, you know, that we rip happily, you know, couples who are happy together, how can we rip them apart in that way? Um, You know, that that could possibly be the case. And so it could have been given more prominence, and I think would have been a major factor. And it was unfortunate at times that, sadly, some of the Yes campaigners felt trans was too hard and let's just sort of sweep it under the rug a bit. And on many levels, there is still a degree of frustration and unhappiness that needs to be sorted out between some Yes campaigners and trans people and in other areas in similar ways, groups like bi, intersex, people of colour, from all that I can gather, acknowledging any privilege I have in those areas where I don't identify in that way. Are there other issues that are that remain invisible that trans people face in relation to being able to freely love whomever they so choose? In terms of relationships, um, probably once we get um, these sorted, we've done most of the work. But um, you know, I suppose it's indirect effects of other things. You know, sort of if people perhaps don't understand trans issues, would the the remaining surgery requirements that are still there in Victoria and the other six of um, five states and territories that haven't moved on, um, would that be some some sort of impediment, people not understanding that body's not relevant? So when we recognise trans people fully, which we still need to do in Victoria and, as I say, those other five states and territories, it will probably send signals... Um, indirectly, I think more than anything that, you know, a relationship that is based on, you know, appropriate age, consent and agreed safety via communication, not anything else really that is no one else's business. Sally, thank you so, so much for your time on the program today. Was there anything you wanted to add? Yeah, that, um, you know, I suppose the other thing is that, um, you know, we have, let's call, call it as it is, we have, this is a welcome step in Victoria, but we have a state election this year, which I think will be critical. There will obviously be work done by Rainbow organisations working together to get the various political parties, um, or at least the three larger ones, to answer questions. And I think what happens um, for trans people in relation to the further birth certificate reforms, those four other areas I just mentioned that still need to happen, um, is going to be critical. So when the time comes, and if people um, watch out for that information and please make an informed choice because it could be really, really critical if um, rainbow issues are important to you and your priorities. Um, you know, we've got to get these other things sorted. It's been interesting on social media that whilst trans people have been welcoming of the reform that's happened in the last um, few days, there's 
still some indignation that um, more hasn't happened, particularly after what trans people have been through in the last two years and, of course, are still going through. So that would be my real point to watch out for this and um, be, you know, keep informed on, on all the issues as we head into a state election. And I suppose pos- I think we're probably we're due for a federal one by middle of next year, give or take. So uh, I really start putting that thought into people's minds. This is a good step. Um, let's honour it, but obviously still distance to travel. That was Sally Goldner speaking with Giselle Hanna about the end of forced divorce laws for trans and gender diverse people in Victoria in the wake of marriage equality. Women on the line. Next, we'll hear from Jane Green, spokesperson for Vixen Collective, about recent Liberal Party decisions around Nordic model laws in relation to sex work in Victoria. I'm Jane Green. I'm the spokesperson for Vixen Collective, which is Victoria's parent sex worker organisation, and I'm a current sex worker. Could you explain what Vixen Collective is and what you do? Vixen Collective is a peer sex worker organisation. That means that everyone involved at every level in every way is either a current or a former sex worker. Uh, and we provide a range of services in Victoria. We're the recognised representative body for sex workers in Victoria. Um, and we provide peer support, peer education um, and pol- political advocacy, which has been particularly important lately for our community. And could you explain the background around the Victorian Liberal Party's recent decisions around the so-called Nordic model? The... Um, the Liberal Party had their state council um, about six, seven weeks ago, and there are a number of really concerning motions that were put up for their state council, including um, opposition to gay marriage, um, some quite transphobic motions, um, a motion for gay conversion therapy, which was actually thankfully removed um, from their agenda. But also they put up a motion to support the Nordic model. We say the so-called Nordic model because it isn't actually in place in all Nordic countries. And that model criminalises workers in the sex industry by criminalising the conduct around them. So it criminalises uh, our workplaces, specifically brothels and escort agencies. It criminalises third parties, which is our clients, and also people that may facilitate or help us in our work. And it also includes provisions like criminalising living off the earnings, which impacts sex workers' partners and family and even adult children who can be charged with pimping because they're living off income related to sex work. So some quite serious ramifications there for sex workers and their livelihoods, um, and I suppose the safety of work as well. Yes. And look, there was a recent report out of France where the um, Swedish or Nordic model has been uh, in place, and it's shown that sex workers' living conditions, our income, and the rate of violence against our community have all been affected by that law and all affected in a very negative way. It sounds uh, like a sort of soft criminalisation situation. Um, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, The consequences for our community are absolutely catastrophic and that's evidenced by research on the impact of this model where it's been introduced worldwide. Um, You can't criminalise any part of our work and not essentially criminalise us. So it's a very hard model of criminalisation and very dangerous for us. Thanks for clarifying that. And has there now been a change to the Liberal Party's position around the adoption of this model? So the way that things work, different political parties have different processes for taking up policy. So the Liberal Party adopt policy at their state council for the party, but it's not necessarily taken up by the parliamentary party, by the Liberals that are in government. 
And Matthew Guy, who's the head of the Liberals in Victorian Parliament, turned around and said that they're not going to be taking that up at the parliamentary party level. Now, obviously, that's very important for our community and a good thing to hear, but it's also really concerning that there is that level of support for such a negative policy within the Liberals that led to them passing it at their state council in the first place. I mean, could you tell us about what the current legislative situation is like for sex workers in Victoria? Would you say it is a best practice situation at the moment or are there further improvements? Absolutely not. I mean, I've been asked this question before as to um, what the system here is like in comparison to the Nordic or Swedish model. Um, And if you think of it like a frying pan fire situation, we're in a very bad position now, but the Nordic or Swedish model would put us in a much worse position. We work under what's called a licensing system in Victoria, and that means there's very heavy regulation of our workplaces and our work in a way that doesn't apply to other workers. Um, And that includes controls about where, when, with who, and how we can work. And it makes sex workers' lives very difficult. Uh, The law is very confusing. It sits across four different pieces of legislation. Um, So often workers can be contravening the law without knowing it, just because the law is so complicated. And also, anyone who's working outside of the licensing system that isn't complying with all the rules is criminalised and can be subject to penalties and criminal convictions, which will then follow this for life. But also street-based sex work is still completely criminalised, so obviously that impacts workers in that part of our community very negatively. In terms of looking towards positive changes to that legislation to improve working conditions for sex workers, would you say that there's adequate consultation from government bodies to peer-based sex work organisations around what works best and what has the best outcomes for sex workers? No, and look, there needs to be consultation with the community concerned when there's law and policy made about our lives. And historically there haven't been in regard to sex worker community, but also I think many marginalised communities don't get consulted about the law and policy that's applied to them. And that's a problem because when you don't do that, you end up with law and policy that not only fails to support people's rights and health and safety, um, but negatively impacts them. And that's very much played out in terms of how the Liberal Party policy came about that was adopted at their state council. In contrast, the Labor Party in Victoria has recently adopted as part of their state platform support for the full criminalisation of our work. And research and experience shows that's the best model for regulating our work that supports our human rights and our health and our safety. And it's the model that sex workers across Australia are calling for. So a more evidence-based practice approach rather than a morality or sensationalised ideological approach. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think the important thing to point out is that often discussions around our work and our rights as sex workers are positioned as debates. Um, Human rights aren't a debate. Human rights are inalienable. We all get them just by warrant of the fact that we're human beings. And when people make arguments around not supporting the human rights of any part of the community, then there's a word for that. It's called bigotry. And it's not okay and it needs to be called out. Absolutely. And touching on that, you mentioned earlier that it's concerning that there's this sort of level of support for the criminalisation of sex work within the Victorian Liberal Party. Do you have any thoughts as to why this took place at the current time? Do you, do you feel like legislation such as SESTA and FOSTA in the United States is impacting public discussion around sex work legislation in Australia, for example? I don't necessarily draw a connection there. I mean, the legislation that we've put in in the US, the foster and legislation is absolutely having an impact on workers' lives here. 
because workers have lost access to a lot of their low-cost advertising platforms, and so it's absolutely impacted our income. But I think the adoption of policy by the Liberals is more from a long path of people campaigning against the rights of our community, um, and there are organisations and individuals that do that throughout Australia, um, often from a uh, right-wing religious point of view in terms of judging the morality of our work. Um, also, there are those that feel that it's a feminist position and that sex work itself is inherently violent and contributes to violence against women in society. And that's a really problematic attitude because it's essentially victim-blaming workers for their own conditions and when they're subject to violence, and that's not okay. Um, and it erases sex workers from discussions about our own lives. And if our listeners want to support sex workers in the push for better laws or even just find some more information, what's the best thing for them to do? There's a lot of information on Vixen Collective's website, and that's vixencollective.net. Um, I encourage people to follow us on Twitter, at Vixen Collective, and also our national organisation, Scarlet Alliance, which supports sex workers across Australia. There's a wealth of information on their website and through their social media. But also sex workers are a highly engaged community that speak out about our individual lives and work on social media through platforms like Twitter and Facebook all the time. And I really encourage people to listen to individual workers about what we want and what is best for us. And it's easier now at this point in time to do that than ever before. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up the interview today? I think get out and support sex workers, boost our voices on social media and stand up for our community. If you hear people being problematic and being homophobic and stigmatising towards workers in our industry, then say something, do something. Um, and it should be the same for people standing up for members of any marginalised community. We shouldn't tolerate transphobia or racism or any problematic behaviour that disempowers and oppresses people, and that includes behaviour that disempowers and oppresses sex workers. That was Jane Green, spokesperson for Vixen Collective, speaking about recent Liberal Party decisions with regard to Nordic model laws and sex work in Victoria. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. This week, we're bringing you legislative pictures of three different issues. Changes to forced divorce laws for trans and gender diverse people, sex worker rights and the Nordic model, and next, we'll move to safe access zones for abortion clinics in New South Wales. This is 3CR presenter Anya Saravanan speaking with Adrienne Walters, senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. Up next, we have someone from the Human Rights Law Centre, um, Adrienne Walters, senior lawyer, and she's joining us today to talk about the New South Wales Public Health Amendment Safe Access to Reproductive Health Clinics Bill and the implications of its safe passage. Thanks for joining us, Adrienne. Thank you for having me. So the New South Wales Public Health Amendment Safe Access to Reproductive Health Clinics, Clinics Bill, what is it about and what is it aiming to achieve? Sure, it's a, a long title for a bill that essentially creates safe access zones around abortion clinics in New South Wales. And so what it will do is mean that women who for so long have had to run a gauntlet of abuse and intimidation just to see their doctor mm. will now be able to go up to the, the clinic door and know that they can enter the clinic privately 
and safely and without having abuse held at them or mm. um, without having people trying to obstruct their entry. And so it's really a vital bill in terms of making sure that women can access uh, the healthcare that they need. Yeah, and where is the bill now? So the bill has passed the Legislative Council in New South Wales mm-hmm. and it will go before the Legislative Assembly mm. um, and and my understanding is that should happen in early June. Mm, that's really exciting. Um, and yeah, in your experience, exciting. why is the... So it's a 150-metre safe zone, is, is that right? Mm-hmm. And in yeah. your experience, why is that so important? Because that's the, the area immediately outside the clinic that provides abortion. It's a really critical moment in terms of people accessing healthcare. So it's a moment when someone can be identified as accessing a clinic and so that means that the privacy interests are really critical at that moment and mm-hmm. you've, you have people standing out the front who are filming, who are um, yelling abuse, who are taking photographs, for example, mm-hmm. then that sort of sense of privacy that you and I mm-hmm. feel that we are entitled to have when we see our doctor, that's essentially undermined um, mm. when there's people out the front of the clinic um, questioning your medical choices. Yeah. It, at times has also um, led to violence so there have been incidents um, in which there have been assaults and there was some footage from New South Wales recently that was aired in which you know, there was an example of a, an assault and so that's at the most extreme and unfortunately doesn't happen too often but the mm. um, psychological impacts of um, having someone stand outside and question your decisions and you know essentially what what it's going towards is making people feel ashamed about the decision that they're making and the impacts of that psychologically can be quite um, distressing for someone. And assuming that this bill passes safely um, what is next in the fight for safe reproductive health care in New South Wales? In New South Wales, uh, abortion is still in the criminal code. Mm. Um, There are exceptions, which mean that women can often access an abortion, but the reality is it's still treated as a criminal justice matter rather than a health matter. And no other health or medical treatment in New South Wales is treated um, this way. Mm. And so what that communicates to women is that, um, you know, again, the decisions they're making about their bodies and their lives um, for some reason need to be subject to the criminal law. Mm. It's a criminal law, it's a law that's over 100 years old, it's clearly outdated, it goes against modern medical practice and community values and so the next step is to see abortion taken out of the criminal code mm. and regulated like any other health procedure. Yeah, yeah. So in New South Wales and in Queensland there are exceptions the criminal law, which means that women can access abortion, um, for example, where it's uh, for health reasons, so physical or mental health reasons, or um, you know where their life is a, is a threat. Um, but what this does is essentially place decision-making power in the hands of doctors rather than um, positing a woman as the person who is best placed to make decisions about. Um, her body and her life and Mm -hmm. so in terms of having abortion taken out of the criminal law 
um, what uh, we'd like to see is that it's replaced with laws that respect women as autonomous decision makers, as um, the people who are best placed to make the decisions about their bodies and lives. Um, it's quite positive to see that in Queensland, the government has asked the Law Reform Commission to review its abortion laws and it has stated that it wants to modernise abortion laws in Queensland. Um, we haven't seen any such commitment from New South Wales yet, but it's certainly something that we'll be pushing into the future. Mm. It absolutely um, stuns me that we're still seeing women's bodies controlled by laws that are over 100 years mm. old in New South Wales and Queensland. It's quite incredible. So I think change is coming and it's just a matter of time and really pushing politicians to appreciate that it is time. Um, and I also read with interest your, your media release about the High Court case, the test case regarding the validity of Victoria's safe access zone laws. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that case? Yes, yeah, so the, um, Victoria has safe access zones um, around abortion clinics and they've been in place since 2015 mm. and they've been really effective in terms of making sure that women can see their doctor without um, facing the harassment and, and abuse of anti-abortionists out the front of the clinics. Um, we've heard really positive things from clinic providers in terms of just how much better this has made things for patients but also for their staff. Mm. And so these laws are being challenged in the High Court. Um, the challenge is about whether they are constitutional or not and whether they breach the implied freedom of political communication. Mm. And our position is that, um, of course, freedom of political communication is really, really important in Australia, but so too is the right of women to access medical care safely and privately. Mm. And we think that Victoria's safe access zone laws strike the right balance. Yep. And um, and so that's where we're asking the court... Um, if we can make submissions to support the laws in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's really interesting stuff, and I think we'll all be really tuning in um, about that. Um, thank you so much again for joining us, Adrian. That's all right. Thanks for having me. That was Adrian Walters, senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, talking to us about the New South Wales Public Health Amendment Save Access to Reproductive Health Clinics Bill. You can read more about the bill and all about the other important work the HRLC does on their website, www.hrlc.org.au. That was 3CR presenter Anya Saravanan. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenonthelion at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm Emma Hart. I hope you can tune in again next time. <laughs>